Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming. We get to start at the beginning again. So I want to say the blessing for studying Torah and then say Shechianu, because when you reach something that you haven't done in a year, a new cycle, we get to say Shechianu. So first, the blessing for Torah study. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kitshanu B'mitzvotav V'tzivanu La'asok B'divrei Torah. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Shehechianu V'kiyamanu V'higiyanu L'azman Hazeh. Blessed are you, source of life, who has kept us alive, sustained us, and allowed us to reach this moment. So uh, for Breshit, in the beginning, as we begin again, we had a beautiful Simchat Torah on Tuesday night um, and read the end and the beginning and welcomed a new Torah scroll. <laughs> so I have a lot of somewhat half-baked thoughts so uh, we'll see where this goes. But I know how I want to, I know what I want to start with. And what I want to start with, which I like to do a lot, every time, you know, I, I, this is one of my favorite pieces of commentary, is Rashi's comment on the first verse of Genesis. Breshit bara Elohim et hashamayim ve'et ha'aretz which is usually translated, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, heavens and the earth. However, Breshit bara Elohim et HaShemayim, but arts in Hebrew, as many of you know, is not grammatical. Because Breshit means in the beginning of. God created the heaven and earth. So we don't really know how to um, translate this line. And so neither did anybody else. So I'm going to share my screen. There we go. Okay. And I'm going to put this down here and move this over a little. There we go. So first of all, uh, if you don't know about this website, it's called Sepharia. And um, as it has grown over the years, it is like having an astonishing library of Jewish uh, traditional and modern texts all in one place. So if I click on this first verse, Hold on, let me minimize my chat window. Um, over here, I, I don't know if you, can you see that where my cursor is? Over here, 425 commentaries. 24 from Dalmud, Midrash. And then you click on commentary and you have 291 different commentaries. Um, Isn't that astonishing? And so if I click on the top one, which is Rashi, who's the most famous commentator, here it is. Rashi's commentary in English, but I want it in Hebrew. So if I click on it again, wait, how did I do that? Um, the Aleph on top. Oh, really? But I want it. No, but I want it. it there's oh. also the option of having it in translation. Um, wait, I'll figure oh, it out. It. I'll figure it out. Hold on. Open. There it is. There we go. So here it is in Hebrew and English, the whole Rashi translation. Do you know how many books I have here? <laughs> I know which ones to reach for. Here are the rest of them. <laughs> and here it all is on my screen. It's just astonishing world we live in. Okay, so what I want to share with you is Rashi's comment on Breshit Bara. Oh, let's see. There we go. Here's the Hebrew. 
and my favorite phrase. This is how Rashi chooses to open his commentary on the Torah. Breshit bara. Now, Rashi knows this is not grammatical, and so he says, Ein hamikra omer ela darsheni. This text says nothing other than interpret me. This text says nothing other than interpret me. And so, okay, now if I do that, ta-da, okay. Now I'm gonna stop sharing my screen for a minute. So it's, if you think, so people are interested in learning about Judaism, so they pick up the Torah. And they don't know anything, so they start reading the Torah, because the Torah is Judaism, not. And we've learned this in the course of the year. No, the Torah, the Judaism is the Torah and our comments on it. That's Judaism. Our ongoing 3,000-year-long conversation about Torah. And uh, that's the first thing to remember when uh, we start the cycle again. I wanted to share that with you. And um, here's what I want to talk about now. We have, in Genesis chapter 1, a creation myth. It's beautiful. This beautiful story of six days of the earth, of, of, of creation coming into form and everything that's in it. And then on the seventh day, God rests. And then in chapter two, we have another creation story. Let me share it with you. I'll go to chapter two. It starts in verse 4. This is the story of heaven and earth when they were created. When Adonai Elohim made earth and heaven, and no shrub of the field was yet on earth, and no grasses of the field had yet sprouted, because Adonai Elohim had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no person to till the soil but a flow would well up from the ground and water the whole surface of the earth. And so Adonai Elohim formed Adam from the dust of the earth and blew into the Adam's nostrils the breath of life and the Adam became a living being. And Adonai Elohim planted a garden in Eden in the east and placed there the Adam whom God had formed. As any careful reader notices right away, we have two creation stories. And one of the things to understand, I think, about, cre about creation stories and about the Torah as a whole is that the Torah is not a scientific theory about the origin of the universe. That's what scientists, sci that's what scientists do. That's what cosmologists do. They try, they're coming up with a store, like a unified field theory of how the universe came to be. It's a beautiful undertaking. I'm not criticizing it at all. Um, but the Torah is here to offer us stories about how the world came into being. Stories that might reflect and reflect ourselves back to ourselves and teach us something about the nature of creation. Now, as to Jewish commentary developed, there was a strong desire to harmonize these two stories. The best, and that's good, we'll talk about that too, but, but the best I can figure is that the original framers of the Torah had no problem 
with having more than one creation story. They weren't on the same wavelength we are about needing to know how it happened. They were doing something different where having multiple stories was fine. So the next thing I want us to do is to loosen up <sighs> and shake off those centuries of it having to be, what is the story here? Wait, there's a contradiction here. This isn't right. Okay, so that's the first thing I want us to shake off. Put on your story time hats. Okay, because we are going into the land of once upon a time. And that's good. As whoever said this to me years ago in our classes, ah, it was Joya Timpanelli, professional storyteller. Whenever Joya starts a story, she says, once upon a time. When was that time? When wasn't that time? Because that's a story. A story is happening to us now because we entered it. <sighs> so freeing ourselves in that way, we don't have to, we don't have to spend excesses of energy uh, explaining the contradictions in the Torah, but rather looking for the narrative arc and where it might be pointing us towards, what insights it might want us to have, all that kind of thing. It's not linear in that sense. Uh, and it's, it's, it's not a, it's not a narrative. It's a postmodern novel where we're hearing multiple points of view. And somehow, if we hear enough of them, a, a, a picture of the story will take shape that, that each telling, each telling isn't going to be able to um, encompass entirely. So that's the next framing thing to share. Now, the next thing I did was I went to Wikipedia today and I started looking up creation stories. That is really fascinating. Um, it seems like almost every human culture, we can't, I can't make universal statement is wired wants to something about us the it's a great mystery to tell a story about how things came to be and think about that for a minute we just said in the beginning and the next framing for approaching the torah is to recognize that it's an utterly fantastical, mind-boggling fact that we're alive on this world. I can't figure that out. It's so beyond me, I have no idea. There's a butterfly bush out my window. Uh, everywhere I look, I can be um, befuddled and astonished. Ah, hold on, I'm opening my, yeah, the creation story at the start of Braiding Sweetgrass, I'm going to cite that one. Um, that's the uh, Haranasani, the Iroquois Nation um, creation story. And there are many versions of it because oral traditions didn't have to be fixed in their telling. Each storyteller could um, uh, filigree and uh, um, emphasize and tell a different twist on. Because Judaism became a written tradition a long time ago, we what it did, in my opinion, is it gave us the ability to carry our tradition with us in exile. Most scholars think that the Torah was codified during our exile in Babylonia in around 500 BCE, because here are a bunch of people away from their holy mountain, away from the sacred cycle of the season that they're accustomed to, away from the locations 
where stories dwell. Here's Abraham and Sarah's cave. Let me tell you a story about it. And it all has to be, how do you carry that with you once you're uprooted from your land? The genius of Judaism was to write it down and carry our homeland with us, as George Steiner said. Um, the, um, the kind of um, um, ossifying, hardening result of that was that the text becomes a fixed story. And so, as you understand, what we started doing was telling stories about the story. That's known as Midrash. That's why Rashi says in the 10th century, in the 11th century, this book says, interpret me, right? Inquire. Ladrosh means to interpret, to inquire, to seek. Um, and again, we but we because we're human beings, we face this sort of un, undying impulse to want to know exactly how it's supposed to be. And because it's written down, we forget that it's a living story. So what Bible scholars do is they look elsewhere in the Torah and they find, as it were, um, artifacts, remnants of other creation stories that were also told. When you look in the book of Psalms, for example, there's a Psalm that talks about God battling with Leviathan and taming Leviathan, and then cutting up Leviathan and making the world out of Leviathan's body. It's another story that got told. It's sort of off there in Psalm, I think it's 78 or something. I forget the exact number. In the book of Job, as God recounts, you know, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the unimaginable power of creation, it's, we get a hint of another telling of how the world came to be. Imagine a time where there were multiple creation stories that people would tell based on what the need was or what, that, what the preference was. And we can kind of like loosen up about it. Um, so I want to spend a little time. Oh, the other thing I want to say before I look at some of these other creation stories is that um, there seem to be motifs that run through many, many of the stories. Motifs like the world is wet and dryness has to emerge from it. Motifs that the world is dark and light has to be created. It's fascinating. Motifs of a tree. Um, trees turn up everywhere. It is so often in these stories. And we find all of those motifs also in the Jewish stories, which leads me to speculate that this is a yes and statement, not an either or statement. That yes and, yes and. One possibility, there are also gestation and birth creation stories. So that as we try to put into narrative are in this, this impossible to describe experience of life coming out of the nothingness. We use metaphors from our physical experience, metaphors of birth, of, of, of uh, sexual union, gestation and birth, metaphors of the darkness of the night becoming in the day, the light giving definition to the world. Um, um, images of from the amniotic swimming of our of our um, uh, in utero experience coming out onto dry ground and breathing air for the first time. I mean, imagine that. How, how does that happen? Baby hasn't breathed, and then the living being, separate from its mother. It's like, so maybe those experiences come out of, maybe we're trying to describe the experience out of what we know, which is all we know is our physical experience. Or maybe, and maybe there is a spiritual reality that we all sense 
out of which light enlightens us, out of which uh, we experience something greater than ourselves. So there might be, so perhaps, whether it's in our neural wiring, our experience, or our neural wiring is tuned to pick up this greater reality, which is actually what I think. Uh, but I'm saying and, and, because I can't, can't, I just have that experience. I don't know if it's true or not. And it's so rich to me, it doesn't really matter that creation stories all over the world resemble each other. So they're either resembling a spiritual process of manifestation um, that can be experienced by humans no matter where we are and what our culture, or an experience that's more grounded in our physical experience. It's all okay. Let's listen to a couple, because I find it really beautiful. Oh, thanks. I told you I was going to ramble a little bit. The reason I wanted to do this is because the creation story in Genesis gets blamed for the world's problems. Have you ever heard that stuff? It's like, if, if it wasn't for this book, then, you know, women wouldn't be oppressed. Then we wouldn't be destroying the world. Then we wouldn't. It's like, oh, my God. I have to say I smell anti-Semitism in that, uh, oh, original sin. Yeah, yeah, well, which that's a particularly Christian take on the, the story of Genesis. But in modern times, feminists find the root of all evils in our creation story. Christians find the root of our degraded status in our creation story. Um, um, environmentalists find the root of all human evil in our creation story because it says, and God gave the human being dominion over creation, right? And then when you start reading other creation myths, they're basically telling the same story, my friends. So it makes me um, suspect to say the least of the harsh critique placed on the stories of the, the, our, Jewish, our, our Jewish creation stories. And um, since the role of Jews in the um, Christian-dominated world is to serve as the scapegoat for the world's problems, even in a post-Christian, as it were, uh, era, those biases and prejudices just persist. What's the problem? Well, it's, obviously it's the Jews. So you'll forgive me for being so stark about it, but please, when you read Bull about how the Old Testament is the root of the world's problems, don't buy it. That is part of the mother's milk, as it were, that we've been taking in so long that we don't even recognize that it's poisoned. Um, and part of my job as a rabbi is to, in some way, liberate us from that um, internalized uh, hatred of our, our past. So that, so um, post-Christian era, I just made that up. What I mean is um, um, that uh, Christianity does not dominate the, uh, the, the intellectual discourse of the world in the industrial and post-industrial world. That got moved into other kinds of languages, not religious languages, like capitalism and communism and all other kinds. But what carried through from that, even though Christian, Christ, Christ, Christian religious discourse was not the dominant discourse, the bias against the Jews and the use of Judaism as the scapegoat for the world's problems did persist. And so modern anti-Semitism is an outgrowth of the explicit anti-Judaism of, Christ of Christianity. There you go. Okay. So 
as we frame our entry into the Torah again, that was important for me to say. Each one of the things that I've said so far. Now let's look at a couple of these stories. They're fun to just sort of, and I want to acknowledge, by the way, that these are Wikipedia articles. So who knows how accurate or inaccurate they are, but I think they get kind of the thrust of things. And I don't mean that as a dig against Wikipedia. Um, yes, we have, a, Joan has a bookcase of creation stories. We do too. The Maori people. They are Polynesian people who are uh, um, the indigenous folks in New Zealand. In one generalized telling of the universe's creation, in the beginning there was Tekore, the nothing, the void, which became Tekore Matua, the parentless void, in its search for procreation. From it came Tepo, the night, becoming Teporoa, the long night, and then Tepo Noi, the great night, and gradually Te'ao, the light, glimmered into existence, stretching to all corners of the universe to become Te'ao Turoa, the long-standing light. Next came Ta'ata, the dawn, in which came Temaku, the moisture, and Mahoranuyatia, the cloud of the dawn. And the moisture and the cloud of the dawn wed to form Rangi. It sounds like Genesis chapter one to me in an interesting way. In other versions, the evolution of the universe is likened to a tree with its base, tap roots, branching roots, and root hair. Another theme likens evolution to the development of a child in the womb. As in the sequence, the seeking, the searching, the conception, the growth, the feeling, the thought, the mind, the desire, the knowledge, the form, the quickening. I thought that was beautiful. Six, how oh, beautiful. I'll come back to it. So that's over on the other side of the world. Now, Ellen Weaver wrote in the word tehom. I want to talk about that a little. It says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the ha'aretz haita tohu vavohu, and the earth was unformed in chaos, or chaos and void. Bechoshech with darkness over Pnei Tehom, the surface of the deep. Beruach Elohim and a wind or spirit of God, Mirachefet, that's what a bird does when it swoops down over the water, swept over or hovered over the water. Bayomer Elohim Yehi Or, Bayehi Or. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Now, this word, the deep in English, no one knows how to translate, tehom. Tehom is, um, this is a little excursion. Back in the mid-1800s, um, an incredible archaeological find in ancient Babylonia of seven tablets of cuneiform that, that became known as the Enuma Elish, uh, because those are the first two words. First, they had to figure out cuneiform and how to translate it. But, um, and Enuma Elish means when from on high and is, the Babylonian, is a Babylonian creation story. In that Babylonian story, and I won't go into it in detail right now, Tiamat, Tiamat, which is in Hebrew, the cognator that is Tehom, same feature. Uh, Tiamat is the great mother goddess. And there's all kinds of shenanigans going on with the gods fighting with each other. And it's quite a story. If we had hours, we should read through all of these. Eventually, Marduk is born, 
And Marduk does battle with Tiamat and slays her, cuts her in two, and out of one half of her body makes the earth, and out of the other half makes the heavens. Okay, so that's the Babylonian story. Mother Earth is Mother Earth. It's uh, and this is the story. Now, ironically, Marduk, the great god of the pantheon, Babylonia, um, is becomes in the story of Esther, Mordechai, the father of Esther, whose name is Ishtar, who is one of the goddesses. That's a whole other excursion. Um, so to home in our Torah is some version of the body of the mother, the great mother, and that God turns the great mother into the earth in the same, in, in our story, in a very different way than Marduk does in the Enuma Elish, but it's, it's fascinating that way. Let's look at another story. Where'd it go? Ah, sorry about that. In the Navajo creation myth, this is cool. You like put your story hats on, like I said. Um, the basic outline begins with the creation of the holy wind a, and a, a Ruach Elohim. A, a, a divine wind hovered over the face of the waters as the mists of lights, which arose through the darkness to animate and bring purpose to the four dine, holy people in the different three lower worlds. Now, by the way, their story is called Story of the People. And here's another place. And forgive me, I'm going to bring our faces back up. So the Navajo, as well as many, many indigenous people, call themselves the people who are the center, in other words, the reason for the creation. Right? that we're here. We're going to tell the story about how we got here. That's what the Torah is doing. And we are the people. We are God's people in our story. And we are to be a holy people in our story. So now I need to highlight once again, why are the Jews uh, why are the Jews demonized for telling our story about our people? How does that happen? Because you cannot have a conversation amongst, uh, I can't, amongst a group of Jews today who say, but why do we have to be the chosen people? Doesn't that make people hate us? So I'm again, Widen your view. We were, we were demonized by the dominant civilization of Christianity as people who thought we were so special, when in fact, who is so special? The dominant caste, the Christians. And they can blame us and call us, if it weren't for you people, thinking you're chosen, then the world could be redeemed because we could all accept Jesus, right? And again, this narrative of blaming the Jews works its way into our cultural psyche, even when we're not using the explicit Christian language anymore. And the Jews become, because of our determination to be special, the problem. What culture willingly gives up its life for the good of humanity? Only the Jews are asked to do that, right? 
So again, oh, I wish I could shout this from the mountaintops. Um, the, the usual canards about the problem with Jews, whether it's our creation story uh, or our chosenness or all of this stuff is the result of being the scapegoats of the dominant civilization over a long period of time. Where is it? How do we see this happening now, say, um, on the far left? If you as a Jew claim to think that Israel is not the source of the world's problems, you are excoriated. You are blacklisted. You're sidelined. In, in some of my daughter's social situations that they have to face, if they do not disclaim their pride in being Jewish, they are not acceptable. This is just anti-Semitism, right, in, in its ever-changing forms. Thank you for letting me share that. Let's go back to the... Um, and I guess the reason I'm doing comparative mythology today is to show you that our myths are not that different. They're beautiful and they're ours. So this event happened before the earth and the physical aspect of humans had come into existence. So Wikipedia, please. But the spiritual aspect of humans had. The holy people then began journeying through the different worlds, learning important lessons in each one before moving on to the next. The fourth and final world is the world in which the Navajo live in now. The first or dark world was small and centered on an island floating in the middle of four seas. Now, God planted a garden in Eden. I'll read you those verses rather than keep switching the screen to you. To the east, God eternal planted a garden in Eden. Now this is a primordial garden, right? The human being in the garden, is this, is this a physicalized human being? Or does that only happen at the end of the story when the humans are kicked out of the garden and have to live in the world and work by the sweat of their brow? Is this garden that we talk about, is this comparable to a spiritual world centered on an island floating in the middle of four seas? It says, God planted a garden in Eden, setting the Adam there whom God had formed, then out of the soil, God grew eternal, grew trees alluring to the eye and good for fruit. And in the middle of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of all knowledge. A river went forth from Eden. From there it divided and became four branches. I don't know, we love four. We live in quadrants, don't we? So there's an, so there's an island in the middle of four seas. The inhabitants of the first world were the four Dinie, holy people, the two coyotes, the four rulers of the four seas, mist beings, various insect and bat people, the latter being the air spirit people, the supernatural beings, first woman and first man came into existence here and met for the first time after seeing each other's fire. Sounds like the Garden of Eden. The first woman, the first man, and the first woman meet. The various beings on the first world started fighting with one another and departed by flying out an opening in the east. I like this story. They journeyed to the second or blue world, which was inhabited by various blue-gray furred mammals and various birds, including blue swallows. The beings from the first world offended Swallow Chief, and they were asked to leave. Hmm. They had to leave this world. First man created a wand of jet 
and other materials to allow the people to walk upon it up into the next world through an opening in the south. In the third or yellow world, there were two rivers that formed a cross and the sacred mountains, but there was still no sun. More animal people lived here too. This time it was not discord among the people that drove them away, but a great flood caused by Tihutsodi when Coyote stole her two children. We know, those of us who've studied creationists, that great floods, which is what happens in the next part of Genesis, Noah's flood, are also features of creation stories. I love speculating about this. It's so dreamlike. When the people arrived in the fourth world, or the white world, it was covered in water and there were monsters living there. The sacred mountains were reformed from soil taken from the original mountains in the second world. First man and the holy people created the sun, moon, seasons, and stars. And it was here that true death came into existence via coyote tossing a stone into a lake and declaring that if it sank, then the dead would go back to the previous world. Um, oh, then there are hero twins that are born. That happens a lot in these stories. Um, isn't that beautiful? Now, just keep hearing. We, I just want us to hear these themes. And I welcome your comments in the chat anytime. So here's another one. Here, we meant, oh, Yoruba. I chose this one because it's from um, the Western coast of Africa. The Yorubas as a people regard Oludumare. The name symbolizes a divine entity that has no father or mother and that simultaneously is and is not bound by space, time, and dimension as the principal agent of creation. According to one of the Yoruba accounts of creation, at a certain stage in the process, the truth was sent to confirm the habitability of the planets that were newly formed. The earth being one of these was visited, but considered too wet for conventional living. After a successful period of time, a number of divinities led by Obatala were sent to accomplish the task of helping earth develop its crust. On one of their visits to the realm, the arch divinity Obatala took to the stage equipped with a mollusk that concealed some form of soil, winged beasts, and some cloth-like material. The contents were emptied onto what soon became a large mound on the surface of the water. And soon after, the winged beasts began to scatter this around until the point where it gradually made it into a large patch of dry land. The various indentations they created eventually becoming hills and valleys. Obatala leaped onto a high ground and named the place Ife. The land became fertile and plant life began to flourish. From handfuls of earth, he began to mold figurines. Meanwhile, as this was happening on earth, Oladumari gathered the gases from the far reaches of space and sparked an explosion that shaped into a fireball. He subsequently sent it to Ife, where it dried much of the land and simultaneously began to bake the motionless figures. It was at this point that Oludumare released the breath of life to blow across the land. And the figurine slowly came into being as the first people of life. For this reason, Ife is locally referred to as Ife Udaya, cradle of existence. Isn't this cool? I have the, um, I have the Eden story and I have chapter one and I hear some of chapter one, the, ru the ruach on the face of the waters, the dry land emerging, the rivers, the human, it's so cool. It's like, it's almost like we have like um, uh, a huge table of um, either magnetic poetry, um, uh, 
labels or maybe a sand tray with incredible with all of these little figurines and and we're making the world the fascinating part to me which i which is just as fascinating as the fact that the world exists is that there are these motifs these images that repeat over and over again in all these stories let's look at the iroquois one because uh this is the one that's cited in Braiding Sweetgrass that Joan was talking about before. And it also exists in many versions. But this is very similar to the one. The earth, this, the earth was a thought in the mind of the ruler of a great island floating above the clouds. Where is this above the heavens? that God dwells. What is that? What does that mean? This ruler was called by various names. Among them, he who governs or the ruler. The island is a place of calm where all needs are provided and there is no pain or death. On this island grew a great apple tree where the inhabitants held council. Is it the tree of life? The ruler said, let us make a new place where another people can grow. Okay, what's it say in, in uh, chapter one of Genesis? And God said, let us make human beings in our image after our likeness. And let them hold sway over the fish and the birds and the animals that creep on the earth. Um, okay, let us make a new place where another people can grow. Under our council tree is a great sea of clouds which calls out for light. He ordered the council tree to be uprooted and he looked down into the depths. He had sky woman look down. He heard the voice of the sea calling and he told sky woman who was pregnant to bring it to light. He wrapped her in light and dropped her down through the hole. All the birds and animals who lived in the great cloud sea were panicked as Sky Woman came down. The, dusk the duck asked, where can it rest? Only the earth can hold it, replied the beaver. The earth was the Oida from the bottom of our great sea. I will get some. The beaver dove down but never came up. Then the duck tried, but its dead body floated to the surface. Many of the other birds and animals tried and failed. Finally, the muskrat returned with some earth in its paws. It's heavy, he said. Who can support it? The turtle volunteered, and the earth was placed on top of his shell. When the earth was ready, the birds flew up and carried Sky Woman on their wings to the turtle's back. And this is how the turtle became the earth bearer. When he moved, the seas get rough and the earth shakes. Once brought to the surface, the oida, the soil, grew and became an island. Now listen to this part. Sky Woman heard two voices under her heart and knew her time had come. One voice was calm and quiet, but the other was loud and angry. These were Doyodano, the twins. The good twin was born in the normal way. The evil twin forced his way out from under his mother's arm, killing her. Okay, we have the story of Jacob and Esau. They don't kill Rebecca, but in the Babylonian tales, there's a story of Enkidu and um, what's the hero's name? Um, it'll come back to me. There are many stories of opposite twins, one good and one evil, one calm and one impulsive and enraged, one, again, we're whatever tribe these come from, whatever people, whatever clan, human nature is the same. And we're trying always to figure out 
why are we this way? What is it? The Torah is one of the answers, trying to answer that question with stories. Why are we the way we are? After the death of Sky Woman, the island was shrouded in gloom. The, the, the good twin shaped the sky and created the sun from his mother's face, saying, you shall rule here where your face will shine forever. But the evil twin set the great darkness in the west to drive down the sun. The good twin took the moon and stars from his mother's breast and placed them, his sisters, to guard the night sky. He gave his mother's body to the earth, the great mother from all life, whom all life came. So sky woman, Tiamat, to home, the great mother is, becomes our world. Our world is, our great, is the body of our great mother in so many traditions. The crow, whose name is Gaga, which sounds like a crow, I guess, came from the sunland carrying a grain of corn in his ear. The good twin planted the corn above his mother's body and it became the first grain. The crow hovers over the cornfield, guarding them from harm, but also claiming his share. The evil twin created, oh, no, the good twin. Yeah, the good twin created the first people. He healed disease, defeated demons, and gave many of the Iroquois magical and ceremonial rituals. Another of his gifts was tobacco, which has been used as a central part of the Iroquois religion. We're almost out of time, but I wanted to point out that one of the things the Torah does that is that after the creation myths and the expulsion from the Garden of Eden, which seems to be pretty clearly to me today, as I compare it to the other story, a spirit world, a, a world of, of perfection that, that, oh, that we are then forced out of into our bodies here in the world where we work by the sweat of our brow and where um, there we are, we have to struggle with life. But in the Jewish myths, creation isn't over, and there are these proto humans, these first people who create culture, musical instruments. And if you read through the chapters in chapter uh, three, in after the Cain, oh, and then there's Cain and Abel. What am I talking about? Evil and good twins. Um, they are the first offspring. That's what I meant to say, not Jacob and Esau. Why are twins born? Because we are divided nature. We are in struggle with ourselves. The world is, is dualistic. The sun rises and then it sets. We are life, but then we die. Like we're, that's our experience here, even though we intuit infinity behind it all. And so there's that great, island above the clouds where the tree, the great apple tree grows and all is well and we can't return to it. You know that when Columbus and the other Europeans came here, they thought that the Native Americans were the 10 lost tribes. And if they'd actually taken the time to listen to their stories, they might've thought that we had the same creation story. Maybe we were all related. And to extend from there, we are all related. We all have a similar way of understanding our place in the world. And uh, so I was gonna say that after Cain is banished, he has offspring. And um, Ada bore Yaval. Yaval was the progenitor of tent dwellers and herders. His brother's name was Yuval. He was the progenitor of all who play the lute and the flute. And Frazilla, she bore Tuvalkayan, who was the progenitor of every artisan who makes copper and iron tools, and so on. So um, in this proto-history before Noah and before Abraham, these original sort of expressions of human culture are ascribed to these first generations of beings. 
but we'll find that in other cultures, in other stories, that they are the they are gifts of the gods. Um, different ways of telling. It's sad, Susan. That's why. Um, but life is sad, right? And so we are faced with this situation. So all I hope we can do is hear about our commonality in a way that allows us to know that we share the same reality with all people, the same confounding reality, the same mixture of bliss and wonder and terror the same reality of a sense of the glory of creation, along with the awareness that uh, a bus could hit you tomorrow and there's no reason why. It's like, we wish we could explain life um, and, and then have it just be good. But we can't get back to that garden. Ghanedin does exist, Ellen Weaver says, and the gates are open for all seeking the goodness and connectedness of all. That's where I want to go, is that the experience of being in the garden is available to us. We can't stay there um, permanently. That's not where the action is. But if we can taste it, then we can carry that into the world with us. And that's why Shabbat is called Me'en olam haba, a taste of paradise. Right? The whole idea of Shabbat in the Jewish tradition is that it lifts us up out of the dual, dual, duality of daily life to remind us of the, what say, underlying, transcendent, as in that island above the clouds, transcendent unity, the body of Mother Earth that makes up our home, that we're all a part of. So Shabbat consciousness, as we talk about it in Jewish terms, is that um, practice of returning to the garden consciousness, sitting with the tree of life, remembering the unity of all, so that when we return to our labors, we carry that with us. And certainly that's the goal of Torah teaching, as far as I'm concerned, which is why I have this impulse today to bring in other creation stories rather than to hyper-focus on just one for starting the Torah. I wanted to expand our focus today. It's the terror, says Susan, that causes some people to look for people to blame. Yes. And then there comes this challenge we have, which is that there is terror. Life is scary. We get disconnected. Can we accept that as part of the experience of life without looking for someone to blame? That becomes the challenge. If, our cha if instead we interpret it, well, then I just won't feel fear, then we're going to be living in pretense, right? We're going to be a fake enlightened person. You've met plenty of them. I'm in total acceptance. I'm full of shit. Right? Okay, so it's not about eliminating terror. It's about accepting it as part of this strange creation we're in. Paul says, the pure creative impulse is imbued with goodness, truth, and beauty. Agreed, Paul. And Ellen says, and to dip in as often as possible for moments during the week. In Jewish terms, that would be praying three times a day. For Muslims, it's five times a day. For other traditions, it's meditating X number of times. You know, for others of us who don't adhere to a particular spiritual traditional practice, it's looking out the window and uh, holding our teacup, whatever it is. And Emma says, may we also see our similar stories as an invitation into the sacred responsibility to support the struggle of indigenous peoples whose land we are guests on. Well said, Emma, thank you. Okay, and with that, we've started the Torah again. So I'm going to conclude by uh, stopping the recording. <laughs>